Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Isaiah here. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about how PhDs get into meaningful careers in industry. So we've done a lot of polls with PhDs, including with many of you who are watching this. And the, the, the question that we've asked in a variety of ways is, what's most important to you? What's most important to a PhD working for their career, for their life, et cetera. And at the top of the list always is doing meaningful work, having an impact. So Lisa says we're live in the private group. That's great. Lisa, can you check the fan page too? We should be live there as well. Doing meaningful work is the most important thing. Right behind that is being challenged. So you want to do meaningful work and you want to be challenged. And then of course you want to be paid well and respected for the work that you do too. So the question is, how can you do meaningful work? What does it take to do meaningful work? What provides a sense of purpose in the work that you do? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We have a great show lined up. We're going to start with the show me the data section, of course, and then we're going to move on to an interview with our very special guest, Elise Cortez, who, has, uh, who is the, the, uh, the voice of the very popular radio show, voiceamerica.com. She talks about purpose, finding meaning in, in your work, in your careers. She has a lot of great insights. So for those of you who are thinking, which career path should I get into? What you need to be asking yourself is, what's the professional lifestyle that you want? Um, what is going to give you a sense of meaning? And the reason a lot of you are unhappy right now, whether you're in academia or unemployed, is because you may, you, maybe you've lost that sense of meaning. You realize you don't want to be a professor or the path to becoming a professor is highly unlikely. And you spent all this time in academia, you have all this training, and the career path you're on is a dead end. Or maybe uh, it, it's certainly a, a career path that's not going to bring you the sense of meaning you thought, and now you've lost that sense of meaning. Nothing, nothing is worse than losing that sense of meaning. It's something that I experienced firsthand in my career. Uh, at the end of my, my academic career, I realized that I didn't want to be a professor. I was like, it's like my fifth year of grad school. I, said, I realized I didn't want to be a professor. I saw the numbers like the numbers we share a lot with you, that your chances of being a full-time professor are, are minuscule. Um, I, you know, I looked at the trends, I extrapolated, and I was like, wow, full-time professorships are going to be extinct you know, in, in, in 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, now it's in five or 10 years, the, the full-time professorships are going to be extinct. And it's actually happening. All these full-time professorships are being replaced with adjunct professorships that are uh, much, much cheaper from the university's point of view, uh, part-time contract professorships, et cetera. When I realized that, my whole world came crashing down in a sense, not to sound melodramatic, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was highly motivated, like many of you, right, as most PhDs are. Uh, my career was very important to me. Doing meaningful work was important to me. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was on this career path that wasn't going to go anywhere, and I had no idea what to do next. All I knew was that you could work in academia and try to become a professor, but that was gone now. Or you could 
you know, go to industry, which was a black box to me. I knew that in industry, you could maybe do some of the same stuff you do in academia, but I, had, I didn't know about job titles, what to do, how to get in. I felt like a complete outsider. Um, and I went through a period, a very stressful period. I actually developed a, a stress-induced uh, kidney condition that I've written about a lot um, because of this. I had panic attacks, which is funny because I used to hear about people getting panic attacks. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, you think you're like, you think you're, you're going to die because you're stressed out. Um, I actually developed that. It was a really tough road. And all of it was triggered by losing that sense of meaning. And some of you have been there. We don't talk a lot about it. Today, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about why meaning is so important, how to find meaning in your career. So a great show lined up. Not only do we have on uh, Elise, who I just mentioned, we also have on Brian Getson, who is one of the world's top immigration lawyers. So if you're looking to get a job in the U.S. and you need a visa, stay tuned. His insights are incredible. Things are changing very rapidly um, in terms of what visa you should get on, understanding your visa path, uh, understanding the loopholes that might be available to you, uh, the restrictions. He's going to come on with us. And then we're also going to bring on a PhD, Brent Ware, to talk about his career path as a medical device analyst. So there's a lot of different career paths available. Every radio show, we bring on a PhD in a different career path. We give you the leadership component. We're going to talk about at least with that. We give you some sort of specialized knowledge. We're going to talk about Brent, Brian, uh, the lawyer, uh, for those of you who need a visa. Uh, for that section. And then finally, we're going to talk with Brent about the career path. So very, very excited to get started. Great to see all of you on. For those of you who are associates and who are with us, Kelly, hello, Swati, hello, Eric, Fergus, good to see you on, Efrain, Chada, Cindy, Andrea, Allison, the team, Zia, Yapping, thanks for joining us live. You can talk to us anytime you want in the chat box. If you're watching us on the live stream, whether on Facebook or YouTube, you can ask us your questions uh, in the comments there as well, and we will get back to you. So before we bring on our first guest, I'm gonna share a few things with you. We're gonna go through the show me the data section. We always like to talk about the data as PhDs and then we'll bring on Elise. So this is one of our advanced programs. This is a fairly new program. For those of you looking to get a job in the US, looking to understand the visa process to get consistent free consultations in a private community with top immigration lawyers, this program is for you. It's the international PhD community. I'm mentioning it now because enrollment is open to it. It's a very rare enrollment. Enrollment closes today. You can learn more about it by going to international.cheekyscientist.com. If you're listening by audio after the live broadcast, you can still go to international.cheekyscientist.com to get on the wait list. For those of you watching live, though, you can find out all about this program here. Learn about where the numbers stand, why you need to map out your visa process, why you really should be getting help, uh, from a team of immigration lawyers as well as a team of PhDs, and that's who makes up the program leaders for this group. It's lifetime access. It's one of our advanced programs. I also want to mention we have a lot of great new articles out. If you go to cheekyscientist.com/blog, we've written many blogs. The top ten, uh, the top trending blog right now is these are the five parts of a gold standard PhD level resume. Does your resume have number three? All five are important, but especially number three. So definitely check that out. We have. Two other articles I want to call your attention to. One on negotiating a higher salary. It gives you a five-point plan. And then finally, a, a five-part job search strategy to getting multiple job interviews at the same time. With the economy up like it is, you shouldn't be setting a goal to get one job interview. You should be setting a goal to get multiple job interviews so you get multiple job offers. And then you can negotiate these job offers, leverage them against each other to really drive up your starting salary. This is something we talk a lot about in the article. So make sure you go to cheekyscientist.com 
slash blog. Just a quick check with our members here. If you can see my screen, please type in yes in the chat box. We're gonna jump forward now to the show me the data section. I'm gonna bring on Jeanette. And we're gonna go through this section that we're gonna bring on our very special guest, Elise Cortez, right after the show me the data section. And Jeanette, I'm going to make you co-host. Hopefully that'll help you start your video. Do me a favor for all of you. Hello to Jeanette in the chat box. Hi, Jeanette. Hello, everyone. Why are you excited about today? Today's radio show, today's Show Me the Data. I am so excited because, I don't know, for me, finding meaningful work when I finished my PhD was so, so, so important. It was like all I could think about. And I kept feeling like I was going to end up in a position where everything I was doing was pointless and tedious. Um, and I kind of, like, that's kind of how I was feeling at the end of my PhD, right? You like. Mm all of the work I had done, I didn't really see the big impact or the outcome. I couldn't see it and I didn't want that to happen again. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think a lot of us feel that way and we don't really talk about it because maybe, I don't know, I felt kind of stupid. I'm like, did I really go down this career path this long? <laughs> yeah. And then you realize, I mean, for, if you've worked at the bench or maybe you're TAing, whatever it is, you're doing something very minuscule. And I think you have this sudden realization, like, am I having an impact? Like is loading this same gel every single day for two years, like having an impact. You know, I think sometimes they sugarcoat it. Like my PI didn't say, it's like, this is, you know, it's gonna help us get this paper published and eventually, you know, which is fine for some people, right? For some people adding one brick to a wall is enough. But I think if you wanna add multiple bricks, there's all different types of walls, right? If you wanna add multiple bricks, yeah. um, you just gotta ask yourself, what's gonna give you that sense of meaning you're looking for? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So we like to start with showing some data related to the radio show's theme. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna share my screen here one more time. If you can't see it for some reason, just let us know in the chat box. Jeanette, I'm gonna move my screen around so I can see you too. All right, so again, we're focusing on what provides meaning. And so we wanted to look at two different things here. And Jeanette pulled some great data and we're gonna share it here. But the, the, the main themes of the data are, look, what shows that an employee is, in, is, is doing meaningful work is if they're engaged in their work, right? So this employee engagement and meaning are tied. And then what can companies do or what should you look for in a company uh, so that you know that you're going to have a sense of meaning when you're doing work? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. yeah it does, of course. Okay. So, yeah, so and I think it's, yeah, it's exciting ahead. to think about meaning and engagement connected because meaning is different for everyone. Yes, good, good point, right? So what, what gives you a, a sense of meaning individually is going to be different from someone else, but yeah. there are these broader trends. And yeah. by understanding the broad trends, uh, it can kind of help you understand where you might be able to find your individual meaning. Um, the, the first study that we're going to look at is, is from the state of the, uh, the title of it's the state of the global workplace. Uh, workplace. It's from manager Lenchanter. Did I say that? Sounds French, Jeanette. You could probably do better. Yeah, it's a Gallup poll. Gallup poll. Gallup poll, sorry. Say giddy up. You almost said giddy up and Gallup. <laughs> <laughs> this is really going informal right now. Yeah, Gallup. Gallup poor. Yeah. Uh, so so 85% of the world's employees are not engaged. Every time I look at one of these studies, they all show the same thing. Most employees aren't engaged. And it, it's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, so so the, uh, the study here shows that 17% of, are more productive than those in the bottom quartile, and 21% are more profitable than those in the bottom quartile. What are we talking about here? The business units in the top quartile of this Gallup employee poll in terms of engagement. 
So help us break down these numbers. 70% more productive, 21% more profitable. What are they compared to? How does this relate to engagement? Yeah, so they're comparing those employees who are engaged, right? So the top tier, those employees who are the most engaged compared to those that are not engaged. Right. And how is this impacting the company, right? So they're showing that those who are engaged, which sort of, I mean, logically makes sense, they're 17% more, percent more productive. So right. they're doing more work in less time and usually enjoying it more as well. And then also it affects that bottom line for everyone, right? So they're 21% more profitable. So if you, you're at a place where the employees are engaged, that company is going to be doing better and growing and being yes. profitable, which is, if, even if it's not your company, that's, you want to be at a company that's growing and doing well, because that means that there's going to be new positions opening up for you to move into, yes. you know, and the spirit of that company will be um, positive. Yeah, exactly. And how you should be thinking about this is for those of you looking for jobs is what kind of questions are they going to ask you or should they be asking you to determine where you're going to be engaged, right? So if you've ever heard an interview question, like what kind of work environments have you thrived in before, right? Lots of variations of that question, but that's what they're looking for is like, what's going to make you engaged. And what you should be asking too is, you know, what do you do to keep employee engagement high? That is an incredible question. You should ask about it and you should be trying to look for the fit there you know, don't just focus on the job title, the company name, if it's big, whatever, like, are you going to be engaged in the work? And as a PhD, you have to know thyself. You need to be challenged. You need something that's in many cases, fast paced in terms of what you're learning, right? Overall, it may not have to be fast paced, but you have to be challenged and learning. You have to know that. Um, so that's, that's important. Moving on to the next figure here, leading the social enterprise reinvent with a human focus. This is a, a Deloitte, uh, uh, survey and study. Uh, the fig figure two is what we're looking at here. It says many respondents rated their organizations only somewhat effective or not effective on a number of factors related to experience. So we're looking at employee engagement here and what can provide engagement. And this is all tied to meaning, right? If, you, yeah. if you're engaged, you're deriving that sense of meaning. So what kinds of, kinds of environments, culture at a, at a company is going to uh, facilitate that? So we have not effective on the left of these bar graphs, there's uh, five bar graphs in purple, for those of you listening by audio, all the way to somewhat effective, effective, and then kind of bright pink, red, very effective on the right side. And first we're looking at, and then the, the five bar graphs are positive work environment, meaningful work, growth opportunities, trust in leadership, supportive management. So what are the trends here, Jeanette, and what stands out or what's surprising to you? Yeah, so um, I actually was not that, upset with the results of this, right? So it seems like those people think that a lot of their companies are effective or very effective at, at least half, about half um, are very effective at cr creating these types of um, positive environments, right? right. Place, things that allow you to become engaged and thrive at work. Um, and so that was interesting, but mm -hmm. I think that also begs the question that 50% said that the companies are not effective right. at doing this, right? So for me, the big takeaway from this is that it's up to you as someone job searching to really dig in and do the work and pay attention that to the organizations that you're applying to and ask questions like you were saying earlier to try to figure out if this company is going to have the things that you need to feel supported. So some people might need growth opportunities, right? That might be really important to them. And other people, it might not be number one. They might really want to have a positive work environment where right. everyone is like really supportive and every day is like fun. 
right? right? So there, you just need to pay attention to which, which of these keys, these, uh, these topics is a key to you and then yeah. um, ask the right questions and figure it out for yourself. Yeah, I mean, to sum up, it's basically 50-50, right? So yeah. one out of every two people that you interview with, uh, every two companies you interview with, are not going to have an engaging environment for you. That's how you have to look at it. So this is why you have to do your due diligence and ask questions and make sure it's a good fit for you. And I want to call your attention to growth opportunities, right? So most people say that companies, right, most companies are not effective or only somewhat effective here. As a mm -hmm. PhD, you know, we've done lots of polls and surveys here. This is very, very important to you. You have to know that. You learn very fast. You need to be challenged much more than the average population. Um, I, I was reading a study where uh, if you have a PhD, your, your IQ and your need for challenge is 90 in the top 5% of the uh, population. And why do these numbers matter? Because you, again, you have to know thyself. You can't just assume that what's going to give somebody else a sense of meaning and growth, et cetera, is going to be the same for you. We see so many PhDs getting into jobs and in like six months they, they learn everything and they're like, okay, now what? Right? I think that's where there can be a, a big divide between industry and academia. Because in academia, you always get that sense of learning and growth because the field is advancing, et cetera. But in industry, you might learn all your tasks and after six months, be like, what's going on? And for a larger company, it could be maybe three years before you're really up for a significant promotion. It, it could be sooner, but you have to find that out. Next figure, from employee experience to human experience, putting meaning back into work. Uh, another Deloitte survey, uh, respondents cited societal impact as most often as the top factor used to measure success when evaluating annual performance. Right, so what is the most important? What provides that sense of meaning? We're looking at five things that give employees a sense of meaning here. Societal impact, number one, far and away, we're looking at the same kind of five charts from all the way from, uh, in this case, on the far left is ranked first, on the far right is ranked fifth in terms of order of importance. Um, Number two is customer satisfaction. Number three is employee satisfaction, retention. Number four is financial performance. And five is regulatory adherence. What's surprising here? Were you surprised that societal impact stood out so much? Yeah, so this um, was looking at, right, the, there, this is how they're measuring their success as um, a company. And it's interesting to see that it's twice as big, like twice as many people ranked it first compared to financial performance, right? So... This I think is really key to realize that oh, most everybody wants to make a societal impact. It's really important to have that bigger picture and to be able to work for a place, especially for PhDs. I know that's why a lot of us got into academia in the first place right. is because we really wanted to be able to have this big impact and make the world better. Right. <laughs> right? I know it sounds kind of like wishy-washy, but that's the core of it. And that's what this is showing that you know, twice as many people rank that as their first priority compared to all the rest of the things on this list. Yeah. And, you know, societal impact, you know, the, they gave some examples, but there was a lot, there's a lot of other examples. Yeah. So whatever that impact is for you, the key is you want to do something larger than yourself. That's going to have a big impact on society, humanity, right? Don't get into the semantics, but it is, it does matter for you. And you have to realize that, yes, you have been underpaid for a long time, right? If you've been in academia, if you're unemployed, you want to get paid well. But you have to understand once you start getting your first few paychecks, you're paid well, you're really going to want to make sure that you're, you're doing meaningful work for that pay. It's just, it's hardwired into you as a, as a PhD. So the final thing we wanted to look at is some of these transferable skills that provided a sense of meaning. And they're showing different sectors here from the consumer industry to energy to financial services, et cetera. 
but it shows all industries together in this table. And then on the left, it has these transferable uh, skills. Some of them are slightly technical, but basically these skills, these, these items that will provide you a, a sense of meaning that, that will make your work seem important and make you more engaged in your work. And number one, and this is great news for PhDs, what's number one, Jeanette? It's learning, right? And we talk about this all the time, right? We are all doctors of learning. That's what we love to do. And it's what we are better than almost everyone else at. Right. And, and I think you, you understanding, A, that this is a, an important skill for you to communicate on your resume to employers, et cetera, um, but also a, an important need that you have. So when you're interviewing, be like, what are the growth opportunities? What's the career trajectory like? Who's going to be training me? How fast am I going to learn? How fast can I move on to other projects? It's also important when you're determining the size of company you want to work for. Are you going to feel that sense of learning if you're working for a larger company? Or do you need to work for a smaller, mid-size, et cetera? You have to figure that out. Yeah. Two and three are also worth mentioning here. Four, two. Um, I think uh, four kind of has to do with, with one. Uh, so two is human experience. Three is leadership. Four is talent mobility, right? So almost you know, yeah. talent being able to move up the company ladder, that career trajectory. So human experience, what is this one, Jeanette? Uh, <laughs> yeah, good question. It's a little it's broad. Sort of, what? <laughs> it's a little broad. It is a little broad, right? It's just about the experience of that company and what we sort of like touched on in those other um, graphs about what does human experience mean? And it's these other things that you find supportive at work, right? Like uh, supportive managers, you know, growth opportunities, all those things put together create the human experience. And so they're just showing that this is becoming a focus of these companies, right? And lots of people are ranking this very highly um, in the important things that their company is working on. Excellent. Yeah. So hopefully that gives you a framework for what we're, what we're going to be talking about today, um, finding meaning in work, why it's important, how to get a high paying career that also gives you that meaning. So please do me a favor and thank Jeanette in the chat box, thank or you if you're much. watching the live stream on Facebook or YouTube, thank Jeanette in the comments. Jeanette, thank you. Good to see you. Okay, so we're going to bring on our very special guest, our leadership guest here. I'm going to share my screen and go through her bio before we bring her on. Very excited to have on our guest today, Dr. Elise Cortez. Uh, she is a speaker, consultant, published author, radio show, podcast host, host and purpose engagement catalyst uh, based in Dallas, Texas. Having uh, She's developed expertise uh, within the human capital organizational excellence industry over the last 20 years. Today, she is focused on helping companies, leaders, and individuals across the globe to uh, live more meaningful and purposeful lives, uh, careers, to connect with their work and achieve greater fulfillment, more impactful results, and to achieve better work-life integration. I like that phrase, work-life integration. She is a sought-after speaker and management consultant to organizations, conducts leadership development and employee engagement programs, and facilitates retreats to discover and grow your purpose. Very, very excited to have on Dr. Elise Cortez. I'm gonna show her LinkedIn profile here. So make sure you go over to her LinkedIn profile. It's linkedin.com slash IN slash Elise, A-L-I-S-E, Cortez, C-O-R-T-E-Z. Let's show her how engaged PhDs can be. Make sure you connect with her. Make sure you send that personal message when you connect too, and we will bring on Dr. Elise now. I think if I send this, Elise, I'll make you co-host too. Hopefully that'll help you turn on your camera and we'll jump into talking about meaning. I hear you. Okay, how about that? Ah, we got there it. We go. Voila, we have technology. 
How are you, Elise? I'm so great. I'm, ha I'm happy to be here in this conversation. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. And this is a topic, as you heard, is uh, very, very important to us. And I know it's important to everybody, but I think, you know, people who go into, who are willing to go into academia for an extra, whatever, 10 years, they really are, are have to be driven by meaning because they're not getting the pay. They're not getting anything external. So my, my first question to you is, why is meaning, finding meaning in your work so important for, for everybody, including PhDs? Oh my gosh, how long do we get to talk, Isaiah? Goodness. Well, first and foremost, it, they're, from my vantage point in the work that I do as a logotherapist and in the purpose and engagement space, what we've learned, if you really pay attention, is many people are in a meaning vacuum, an existential vacuum. And so mm -hmm. the extent that you can fill that with meaning, the, the higher well-being you have, the more effective you are, and the happier you are. So of course, that's what I'm up to, is helping people, helping people presence and find more meaning in their lives and their work. And the good news is we can do that as human beings. We're extremely creative in that way. And so the meaning piece is really what drives, you used the word before, of engagement. And actually, in the purpose and meaning space, that's what I claim as being a subject matter expert in. In, in that space, what we're vying for really first and foremost is fulfillment, mm. not necessarily engagement. So kind of fulfillment replaces the word of engagement, if you will. It's the next, yes. next level up right? So what happens is when we cultivate meaning in our lives and our work, we then become fulfilled. The mm. byproduct is, is that we're happy and that we're engaged. And why engagement is important is because it drives our, our performance, our persistence, and our willingness to stay in an organization. Yes. No, that's great. And I really like that you uh, hit on the term fulfillment because you can be engaged on the day-to-day, -day, but how are you going to feel about that engagement afterwards? Um, yeah, great point. So, so my question is, my next question is more about the individual nature of meaning, right? What's meaningful for one person is going to be different for another. So what are some things you can do or questions you can ask yourself to figure out what might be most important to you in the realm of meaning? What might be meaningful to you in life? What might be fulfilling to you in life? Oh, you know, I love that question, Isaiah, uh, because I researched uh, how people experience meaning in their work in relation to their identities, and I found these 15 modes of engagement. And that would be one place to look. If you go to my website, elisecortez.com, the research tab shows that. And what I found is when people read that, Isaiah, they start to recognize, oh, you mean people experience work differently than me? I thought there was just one way. Yes. And no, there isn't. In fact, what we find, of course, and Jeanette alluded to it earlier, we as PhDs, we do have a need to use our, our brains. And so that inquiry into the cognitive space is usually pretty important or to solve really wicked, nasty problems is important to us sometimes. But other people really need to be able to meaningfully connect with other human beings or mm. to know that their values are being utilized at work and through their work. And so back to what you said about know thyself, really important to get clear about, well, when you do find yourself feeling fulfilled and jazzed, what are you doing? Yes. Doing in that work to get to produce that feeling because it's that feeling Isaiah right that we need to be able to propel ourselves through the hard stuff that happens in life whether it's at work whether something atrocious happens in the rest of our life that throws us off board we need to hang on to that feeling of meaning because that's what fills our tank I love that and I, I just wanted to recap you know so, so this is what it looks like you feel great right now after you submit the paper, after you give a talk, after you uh, or work with a small team, whatever it might be, let that trigger you to ask yourself, what did I just do? Like, yes. What just caused that, right? Yes. And then you can find, you could, that can lead you like, like breadcrumbs to, to what gives you meaning. Um, 
my next, next question is, especially for this audience, some of us are sold on this lie that kind of meaningful work, especially like noble work, is separate from making money. <laughs> like you can't do both at the same time. So is, is, is there anything that erodes meaningful work? Like does getting paid mean that it's not meaningful anymore? How, you know, maybe it's a question of intrinsic versus extrinsic. Can you just help us understand the landscape here? Yeah, I absolutely want to do away and abolish entirely this notion that meaningful work means you have to take a vow of poverty. Mm -mm, I'm out. <laughs> um, so, so really what I think we want to get to, and I thought about this and really wanted to share a couple points from this vantage point is when we think about meaning as not just what is meaningful to us, but what can we do? Because meaning really a lot of times is having impact. It means we want to make a difference to, I just said earlier, to a group bigger than us. And so Aaron Hurst, one, one author, talks about purpose containing the fact that we are in service of other people, a bigger crowd than us. We are mm -hmm. growing in the process of that service, and we are building a community in the process of that service. So if we look at meaning really means, in many ways, making a difference to other people. That's really what it means. Somehow, whatever that, how that connects to you. What that means, then, is looking for ways to be able to bring what you can uniquely bring to an organization mm -hmm. That is your impact. And so what I thought about, Isaiah, would be so amazing for, for the, the audience to do is apply your PhD skills. You've been a researcher. You know what it is to do a lit review and then go contribute meaningfully and newly to a conversation to our field. Do that with a job. Go find out what's happening in an organization and discover, wow, what are they missing here? Mm. And then propose that. Go into the organization and say, hey, I was digging around, doing some research, and I think you guys can move the needle if you do this next. Mm. Wow. That is value and that is impact and that is meaning for sure. Yeah, and I really, it kind of leads me to my next question is how do you find that fit? Like you said, okay, so part of it's figuring out what gives you a sense of meaning. Now you have to find a, like a work environment that's going to provide that and it's not going to be, you know, gone in a month. It's going to be sustainable. What kind of things could you, I guess, ask an employer? You know, what, what do you usually coach people on when they're asking you, okay, how do I find an environment that's going to foster my individual sense of meaning? Oh, gosh. Again, we could go so many places. First, let me say this, and this is going to maybe upset some of my recruiting friends, but please don't just look at the traditional job search, the job boards, and put your resume into that awful black hole that will come into an applicant tracking system. It just doesn't do a service. Hmm. We need to know who you are. And so those conversations is how you find out if the, the employer is suitable for you and if you're suitable for them. And I would really encourage every, every interaction that you have as a job seeker, that, it, that includes going to the website and applying for the job. Do they make you go through this really two-hour clunky experience of putting your resume into their portal and you get nothing in return? Is that the kind of place you want to work where it's a, it's a one-way street? You know, mm. What do I get for my two hours of time here? Mm. And, then, and then any interactions you have with the recruiters, do you sense that the recruiters really, are they on their game? I began my human capital career as a recruiter. And oh, wow. I, I considered myself an ambassador. I'm from the Northwest as well, by the way, Isaiah. Um, nice. Oh, I think we lost audio. Um, perspective. Oh. No, no, it's back now. It's back. Okay. Back. Can you hear we're me? Good. Okay, I good. can, yeah. No, yeah. If you could just go back five seconds. I was just checking to see if you were listening, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what I was saying is, you know, when I was in my recruiting days, I really worked as an ambassador on behalf of the companies that I was recruiting for. So looking to see, do these recruiters really seem to have an idea of, you know, do they really know what they're doing here? Or are they just going through the ch series of check boxes of, well, how many years of experience do you have with this? And what yeah. about that? If you, if you don't get the idea that these people really are trying to work on your behalf and really 
place you into the organization meaningfully, pay attention to that. And then when you go into the interview, I've seen this blow up, Isaiah, several times when I was on the recruiting side, is I've worked with very high level searches, ones that our PhDs would be going for. And the, the candidate comes in prepared, jazzed, ready to go. And the executive team makes them wait for a half an hour, an hour for their interview. What does that tell you? Are you really gonna, and so what was interesting Isaiah is, I was on one of those searches and the candidate declined the job after being offered it because he said, I don't think I can make the impact here that I wanna make. Why would he think that? You can't even get their attention in a job interview when we're supposed to each be in our best behavior. What happens when the day-to-day -day stuff happens, right? So really paying attention to how are these people are behaving? What are you learning about the underlying values that produce that behavior? Is that, does that do they align with yours? And there's so many ways for you to pay attention as you go through the process to determine whether or not this is a place you want to hang your hat. Wow. No, I really appreciate that. And we talk a lot about knowing your value and you very often as a job candidate, especially if you're looking for your first job out of academia, you can feel like I got to do whatever it takes, right? I'm nobody in this situation, but that's going to lead to you getting into a job where you don't have that sense of meaning um, where you're not engaged. So really, really good point. I, I wanted to ask you a question, you know, something I've experienced a lot and maybe you can, shed some light on what's going on when I experienced this is I'll like when I first got into graduate school I started doing all this new stuff learning really fast and I it was at the kind of level of my competence where I was getting pushed and I was learning and I found it really engaging I found lots of meaning fulfillment fulfilling but then you hit these plateaus and when you're on a plateau long enough you lose that sense of meaning and you feel like you feel lost I mean you lose your sense of identity in some cases so how can you prevent that from happening or you know maybe a double question. How could you prevent that? What can you do when you get to that plateau, that place where you feel a complete lack of meaning? Oh gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let me tell you this first, I'm a little bit of a context. So I refer to myself oftentimes as the anti undertaker <laughs> because I'm out to help people across the world, find their passion, inspiration, and purpose because many people, Isaiah, just like that, they're walking dead through life and they don't even know it. Yeah. Right. And so that's what happens when we hit that plateau. We can get really complacent because we as human beings, we need that dynamic tension between who we are today and who we're striving to become in the future. That yes. produces a sense of well-being. When we don't have that, we kind of go into this complacent, almost homeostatic state. Mm. That is not healthy. And mm. we start to shut down our creativity. Our energy goes down. We probably gain weight. Our relationships are, are failing. And so look, starting to notice when, wow, I'm not doing things the way that I used to be doing. I'm not getting up at the same time doing my workout. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Noticing that I'm not being invited to meetings at work so much anymore. That's interesting. Hmm. And then certainly, I believe we all need a nutritious diet of inspiration, in, encouragement, empowerment, which is, of course, the stuff that I, that I live in. I just think that today's life, we just need to always be eating from that diet. So they, like your show is fantastic for that, Isaiah, plugging into this where you're always getting a new idea, a new thought to drive you forward. Absent plugging into that, it's really easy to stay stuck in that plateau for way too long. People stay in there for 10 years mm, they get yeah. fired, or they have a health problem or they get a divorce or whatever it is. Yeah, really good points and, and really relevant to those of you who are listening. My last question for you, and I, you know, we, we saw this term, you mentioned it, logotherapy. I just have to know, what is it? Oh, it's so awesome and delicious and yummy. What a great place to live. Um, it's, it's really a, it's the byproduct of Viktor Frankl's um, Franklin, Franklinian mm -hmm. psychology. And he developed it before he spent three years in the concentration camps, by the way. 
but it, what it really is, Isaiah, is it's it's a it is both an a, an application of therapy and a way of life, such that we who use it, we are helping people we work with cultivate more and richer meaning in the every moment moments of life, as well as across life, because that's what gives you that fuel. It, mm -hmm. It's it's what gives you a sense of fulfillment and and positivity and purpose. Um, so we help people discover that and look for that in the in the space. And you can absolutely do that in the workspace and individually. And also another important thing about it in terms of why it works so well, and it's so useful in our everyday lives is because it helps us get access to be able to take any experience that we have in life and transmute it into a positive or more positive experience and see it from the vantage point of what it's given to develop us, not whatever the experience, whether it's getting fired or divorced or whatever, took from us, but what we became as a result of that. So it's incredibly optimistic, positive, and very useful to navigate a big, fulfilling life. So choosing the meaning that you give to things. Absolutely. And looking for new ways to for deeper meaning. So like, for example, as I, in my programs, I help people discover how to cultivate more meaning, passion, inspiration. And part of inspiration, by the way, is awe. Looking for moments and experiencing awe is a way to transcend our consciousness and help us create new models to be able to interact and understand the world and our experience with it. So it takes us higher and elevates us. And so those are all things that are important to do in that space. And you create them in the meaning space. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Please do me a favor in the chat box and thank Dr. Elise Cortez. I'm going to show her website here. You definitely have to check it out. It's called voiceamerica.com. That's one of them. That's for the radio show, right, Elise? That's for the radio show. And then just elisecortez.com for mine. And then Elise Cortez, I'm going to show both of these while you're thanking Elise for her time. Uh, let me pull this up. I think this is it. There we go. So here is EliseCortez.com. Check this out. All of you are going to love going under the research and books tab, but make sure you read the full site. Make sure you connect with Elise on LinkedIn too. And then you can go to VoiceAmerica.com to listen to the radio show, which is fantastic also. Elise, thank you very much for your time. Great Andrea, you. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. All right. Thank you very much to Elise. Please thank Elise in the chat box if you haven't yet. Great conversation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking with the team about what we, just, what we just learned. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. So we're going to move right along in the radio show here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring on Brian Getson. I'm going to do a, a short intro of who Brian is. Brian is a partner at Getson and Schatz. Now, they specialize in getting PhDs, researchers, green cards, work visas. They help you map out their, your path um, to working in the U.S. Now, I, I know there's lots of different types of immigration lawyers. The reason that we work with Brian is he's partnered with us as part of one of our advanced programs, the international PhD community, and he works with us 
providing in that community free consultations, which as many of you know, can be very, very expensive, uh, free, free consultations on a variety of topics in the group. Um, for example, uh, the type of consultation he's gonna give now where he goes through different trending topics, questions that come up uh, from PhDs. There's a lot of different visa options, mapping out your visa path, knowing what to say to hiring managers and recruiters, um, making sure you, you have a path all the way to a, a green card, making sure you have a backup path. All of these things are important. And we've been working with Brian for quite some time now. So I'm really excited to bring uh, Brian on. We're gonna bring him on very soon. I'm a little bit ahead of schedule. Uh, so we'll be bringing on Brian soon. Stay tuned for that. We can either bring on Brent now or Deep or we can bring on or we can do a LinkedIn review. Brian will be here very, very soon. So stay tuned for that. I'll give him a slightly shorter inf uh, intro once he gets on here. We do have Deep here. So Deep, are you ready to come on? Let's bring you on and ask your question. Sure. All right. So I have you on by audio. Let's bring you on by video. How are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well, let's see here, show. And then- Oh, it's saying the, it's not connecting for some reason. No, no, we'll figure it out here. Oh uh, yeah, there should be a little uh, camera button in the bottom left. Are you on a desktop or mobile? Oh, Mac. Mac. I must be desktop. Should be a little camera video button in the bottom left. Well, I'm guessing if your Mac has a... Uh, it's saying you cannot start your video because the host has stopped it. So. What? Definitely didn't stop it. Let me try again. That's not letting me make you co-host either. Don't worry. We'll figure it out. All right. <clears throat> so, Lisa, maybe you can help Deep here get on. We'll see what he can do. Maybe if he logs off and logs back on. Uh, we can we can get them on. What I'm going to okay. do is I'm going to show Deep's question. I'll read through it here. I'll show his LinkedIn profile is what I'll do. We're ahead of schedule for the first time ever on the radio show. I can't believe it. So this is Deep. This is his LinkedIn profile. And he had a question, which was, I'm going to pull up his question. One second. Oh no, that's the, I don't know if I have the right question here. So Lisa or Jeanette, can you put in, oh, there it is, it's a comment. So not hearing anything back from companies. This is the question Deep was answering. And Deep, if we have to do you by audio, we can. So how many of you have experienced this? Deep says, I'm not really hearing back from companies I'm applying to. I'm planning on finishing my PhD sometime very soon. Um, the good side is I'm making connections at my dream companies, but nothing positive has happened ever since. I'm wondering where I'm going wrong in my approach for job searching. So Deep, you still there? Yeah. All right, so tell me a little bit about what you're facing currently. What, 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 are, the, what are the challenges in your job search that you're having? So like I'll give you a brief background. So I'm still doing my PhD in yes. pharmaceutical sciences. And I'm doing a co-op at GSK right now. This is my fourth month at GSK. So um, I'm hoping to finish my PhD like soon, end of this fall. Yes. So I'm, I'm looking out for job opportunities out there in, in the biologics formulation space for now. Because coming to GSK, I think has given me 
uh, a window to think what I want to do next. So I've been applying and, but the only response I get is that you're an international student. We cannot sponsor your visa. Your profile looks great. We want to hire someone like you, but, but they just don't seem to be ready to hire someone with an international background or probably they were like, uh, it's still too early. We need to get your PhD in hand and then we can talk about job offers, but that would be playing it very risky. So Lisa is like, maybe I can get some, some feedback, some thoughts about this. And yeah, so this is my, my question that I'm struggling right now. Like I, I'm seeing really good positions out there that I really want to get into. But the only response I get is that you still don't have your PhD. You still have three, four months. Just wait, uh, get back to us when you have your PhD. In the meantime, they always have questions about what's your visa status? Will you need sponsorship? And so, yeah, so there are many obstacles right now. So even though you, they, you feel like you're the right candidate, but they don't, they don't want to hire you. So, which is a little frustrating at this point. Yeah, no, it's understandable. So I'm, I'm wondering if anybody here who's, who's in the, in the uh, chat box has the same issue, right? We hear it a lot, right? If you're an international PhD, maybe you're talking to a recruiter, they ask you about your visa situation. As soon as they hear, they hang up on you. And so my first question, Deep, is are you talking to mostly recruiters or are you talking to hiring managers? So I've been getting a lot of calls from recruiters, actually, because I changed a lot of things in my LinkedIn profile. So they were like, that's cool. You have a formulation background. You have some industrial experience, but will you need sponsorship? And I'm like, yes. I mean, I will be an OPT, but eventually, yes. And they were like, they are looking someone with a green card or with a permanent status. So, but it's, it's, it's frustrating to hear that because they ask me all questions about my skills. Am I fit for the job? And the last question will be, will you need sponsorship? And, and you said they're mostly recruiters. Yeah, mostly recruiters. But I've, yeah. been, I've been speaking to a few hiring managers. They really like my profile, but they are like, even if we ready to hire you, you still don't have your PhD yet. So it's still too early to give you like a, a yes or a no right now. But they said you have to have it will go through the HR process, which will eventually lead to the visa situation. So... Perfect. And I think we're going to try to get your video on. So Elise, I don't know if you can hear me, but uh, the Zoom has you marked as host. So if you can either transfer that host or leave the meeting, I think it might fix it. Lisa, can you come on for a second and we'll see what we can do here? Because you're co-host, right? I've been trying. I, I'm yeah, here. Okay. I've been trying. So oh, we're just host now. Sorry. Oh, there we go. So let me see if we can get you on um, deep. So deep, you should be able to start your video now. All right. Let me try. The same thing. I might make it a little bit more engaging since we're talking about engagement today. Oh, there we go. We did it. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Saul. Hi, everyone. Okay. No, I really uh, appreciate you sharing this, Deep. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to, let's see, I think if I can hide non-video participants. There we go. Yeah. So your, your problem is very, very common. And so, the, you know, we we work with a lot of PhDs who need visas. And one thing I can tell you is from the job hire perspective, 
avoid in general talking to recruiters, especially external recruiters. And it's just, a, it's just because of their motivation, right? They're, they're more playing a numbers game. They don't work at the companies that you want to get hired at. So they're not as invested. The only thing they're invested in is getting somebody hired fast. So if there's any additional hoop to jump through, they're not going to jump through it. That's why they just ask you a bunch of questions right away. Do you need a visa? And then they'll basically hang up on you. And just like Elise said, you have to know your value in this situation. Do you really want to work with somebody just because they have a recruiter title if they're going to treat you like that? So I would say, don't even spend your time talking to recruiters. Instead, I would talk to the hiring managers. And don't go after the hiring managers themselves. First, do the same thing that you know, we talk a lot about in the association for every candidate. Go to the employees working at those companies, get an infer a referral from an employee to a hiring manager. Because if an employee says, yeah, this person's incredible, we've got to bring them on, the hiring manager is going to be much more invested now. So right. that's, that's a big part of it. And in terms of your visa situation, how clear are you on your visa path? How well are you able to explain it to an employer? Because one thing that we also need to bring up is most employers don't understand the visa path. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't explain it simply enough, they'll feel a sense of uncertainty. They won't know what to do. And that's where we kind of see the relationship break down. I have an international background, so they get my situation. I've not really spoken to someone who doesn't get it because most of the companies, they have a lot of international candidates, be it Chinese Indians or maybe even someone else. So they know the, the situation is tough, but it, it, all, it all boils down to, do you have your PhD yet? So. so there's two things really, it's the visa and then do you have a PhD yet? Right. So, and you're, you're, you're graduating very soon, so that's not right. really an issue. Um, right. So I, I wouldn't focus on that. And then are you okay saying what visa you're on? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I tell them I'm on an F1 and I will be in an OPT. So that gives me a three-year grace period. And we okay. can fight an H1 whenever the company feels that it's about time that we should give it a shot. Right. So you have, a, you have a clear path. So I guess my next qu the last question I'd like to ask is threshold. So how many hiring managers, honestly, have you talked to? I've spoken to quite a bit. So I have, I have a list of different companies that I'm interested in working and I've, I have not just talking to one person, I'm talking to multiple people in the same company, but different departments. Yes. Getting a feel about what their research is first and then asking for reference. That's later on. Yeah. But uh, just trying to know people what's happening in the industry because being in GSK right now has given me that that platform that I can talk to someone on behalf of GSK. So they think it's not just an academic person, but it's someone right. who's actually in the industry talking to another industry person. So right. I think that's, that's a good leverage to have. So I'm just trying to build rapport first and they know why I'm talking to them. Eventually yeah. they, 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 someone has like, people have told me we have open, we have open positions, but let's, let's get your PhD on first and then we can talk from there. Yeah, you're just kind of in that in-between period where you're not quite a month away yet. You're a few months away. Right. So you're doing everything right. You've started these conversations. So if somebody's not willing to say, yes, we're going to wait six months for you and take care of your visa, that's normal. It's, you're mm -hmm. way ahead of the curve. Most right. PhDs wait till they graduate and then they're you know, behind. Right. So keep doing what you're doing. I would say talk. Yeah, this, you just, this process is very, what, what I would say like, it drains your energy. Like after a point, you're like, just take a break for a while. So, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, be gentle on yourself too. Like you are really far ahead. 
you haven't even graduated yet. Right. Um, you are the only thing that you need to be doing right now is building up those relationships so you can circle back to them about a month before and say like, I have my date. It's ready. This is happening. What positions do you have available? Right. Because as soon as they hear you have a, you know, now there's two things. There's the visa thing, but your visa, your visa situation sounds, sounds good. But there's just the, the bigger situation seems to be that you're just not graduated yet, which is right. just right. a matter of time. Sometimes I feel I'm, maybe I'm a little too early. That's what I feel sometimes, but yeah. it doesn't hurt to like look out what's, what's out. Exactly. There, so. No. Yeah. You just have to temper yourself and realize that this phase is not about getting job offers. It's too early. Right. Right, because yeah. you're like about six months. This phase is all just about building rapport, adding value. I would try to meet with more employees, more informational interviews, right? Don't even worry about the hiring managers quite yet at this phase. Just meet with and build rapport with as many employees as possible. So when the time comes, you know, add as much value to them as possible. So when the time comes, you can ask, you know, make a simple ask, like, could you pass on my resume to the employer or could I put your name on the cover letter, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's all I had to. You're on track though. You are definitely on track. It just, you're just frustrated because of time. Cause you're just like, I want to graduate now. That's what it sounds like. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's just a process. You're almost there. The last, it's always darkest before it's done. Right. You're just in those, those last few months. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on deep. Really, really appreciate you sharing. Thanks for having Great me. To see you. Please thank deep in the chat box. Really appreciate him coming on. And it's a great lead in for Brian, who I already introduced. Uh, we put that link to Brian's, uh, firm's webpage in the chat box. So I'm going to bring on Brian now and we're going to talk about visas and, and go through a few questions that, that Brian sent to us uh, before the radio show. Let me make sure I can get Brian's video on. There we go. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well, Isaiah. Thank you. That's actually a tremendous transition. Yeah. What we were planning to talk about today just by coincidence. Yeah, it really worked out well. Um, Really glad uh, Deep came on. So, so the first question that we have teed up here is, does someone need a job offer to self-file for a green card based on their research accomplishments? Sure. So the answer, Isaiah, is yes and no. Okay. So, you know, when, when you, the, the, there's two classifications where foreign nationals self-file for a green card. There's the EB1A Extraordinary Ability Aliens classification. And that's really only going to be used by people from China or India because uh, there's a backlog right now for the rest of the world in EB1. And then there's the National Interest Waiver Petition. And again, that is a long wait for people from China and India. But for China, the wait's a lot closer in NIW than e to EB1A than ever. And there's no wait for people from the rest of the world. So. Those categories, you do not need an employer to sponsor you. You can file the green card petition by yourself and you should. Okay. However, immigration wants to know what you're gonna be doing. They're not giving you a green card to flip hamburgers at McDonald's or work in Walmart. They're giving you a green card so that you can continue your research in your field. So. Mm -hmm. While you are self-filing, you have to have plans for work. The EB1A legal standard is plans for work in the United States. The NIW legal standard is that you're well positioned to continue your proposed endeavor. 
So, you know, you were talking to Deep about how it's early and he hasn't graduated his PhD yet and it's hard for him to find a job. Well, the same can be said for filing the petition for the green card. I really don't like to file it before somebody's graduated their PhD because after you graduate your PhD and you have your OPT and you're working, now it's easy to say to immigration, here's my plans for work. I'm in the OPT job. I'm going to keep, you know, working in this job. If you give me a green card or if I change jobs, it'll still be in my field. Mm -hmm. So I like for somebody to already be in the United States and have a job before filing, because again, immigration needs to see that you have plans for work for EB1A or that you're well positioned to continue your endeavor. And also a lot of cheeky scientist members are overseas right now and you know they're looking to come to the united states and again you can file this from overseas but it doesn't necessarily make sense to do that number one it's going to take you at least a year and a half to two years to complete the whole processing from overseas before you could come to work hmm. number two is that you know if you're overseas and you have no job offer, no nothing, then they, you could get some pushback in terms of, well, if we give you this green card, what are you gonna be doing? Mm. You can technically file it and just say, well, if you give me a green card, I'm gonna keep researching in my field, here's all my accomplishments, and you can sort of trust me that I'm gonna do that. But immigration doesn't have to trust you. Right. So if you are filing from overseas, I'd like you at a minimum to have a letter from somebody saying, you know, we would consider hiring Dr. So-and-so if they had a green card, at least it's something. Yes. But the better way to go if you're overseas is to try and get to the U.S. first in a temporary work status. So try and get here first in an H-1B or a J-1 or an O-1 and then file for the green card here we file 95% of our cases from people that are already in the United States working either in an OPT, a J1, an H1B, or an O1. We do file cases, Isaiah, in the right circumstance for people that are overseas, but it's understanding all of these wild cards. So, you know, you, you can self-file without a job offer, but in reality, immigration's looking for what job are you going to take if we give you the green. Okay, per so perfect. So, the you know the next question, and I want to tie this back to deep is: Does someone need a job to maintain their underlining non-immigrant status? Right. So deep was F one. He's going to get his OPT if he gets a job. So does he need to have a job to maintain his his non-immigrant sure. status? So, you know, when you, after you graduate and you get your OPT, you you know you have to have a job in order to maintain that OPT work authorization. In the first 12 months of OPT, you're allowed up to 90 days of unemployment. And then during the two-year STEM extension, you're allowed 180 days uh, total unemployment for the whole three-year period. Hmm. So if you are from China or India, it's impossible, basically, for you to get a green card during your OPT status because of the backlogs in EB1 and EB2. So, you know, we, Deep was talking about, and you were talking to him about planning ahead. And that's something that I talk about all the time. Mm 
you have to plan ahead for both maintaining your non-immigrant status and for uh, building your credentials towards a green card filing. And the road isn't always easy. You know, you could run up against the H-1B cap if you're working for a private employer. You could get pushback from companies who don't want to sponsor you. The university may only want to put you in J-1 and not H-1B. So all of these frustrations, they're real, they're understandable, and they're just part of the process. And you have to have the big picture of what, where you want to go and what you want to do and how to, to get there. So if you're from China or India, you're not going to be able to get the green card because of the EB-1 and EB-2 backlogs during your OPT. So you have to have a plan. If you're at a university, you have to go to H-1B, which is ideal, or J-1 status. If you're at a private company, you have to win the H-1B lottery. You have to hopefully be qualified for O-1. Or if you don't ever win the H-1 lottery and you're not qualified for O-1, you're going to have to go back to a university in a cap and right. status. If you need a J-1 from a university, then you might need to delay filing your EB-1 or NIW petition because that could invoke a immigrant intent that could prevent you from changing to J-1 mm-hmm. status. So it's all of these planning and talk to the employer at the beginning of the process as you're being hired. Say, mm-hmm. here's my sponsorship need. Will you put me into H-1? Will you put me into J-1, et cetera? Now, if you're not from China or India and you have the qualifications, then you should think about applying for the green card during those three years of OPT. That you can actually at a minimum have a work permit or at least have the green card by the time your three years of OPT expires. And then you don't need sponsorship from anybody, right? You have your OPT and you're not from China or India and you hopefully apply for an NIW petition and you get it approved and then you have a work permit and it's all good. Okay, and then you don't need to worry about these things. But if you're not qualified, you can't do that because you don't want to get denied and then it makes it harder the second time around. So this is why everybody's case is unique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we literally have to talk to each person one on one and find out what are their unique circumstances. But, you know, you you have to you have to be legal in the US at all times. And you're either going to be legal by having an underlying non-immigrant status, OPT, J, H, or O, or you can be legal by filing for the green card, the 485 application. But if you're applying for a green card out of OPT, we want to do the I-140 petition first, and then only file the 485 if and when the, the I-140 NIW is approved. So yes. you have to balance the timing of that also and balance travel. So the, these are the, the factors to consider. But, yeah. you know, I give a pep talk to everybody. You can do it. You know, you can manage your status. You can get through it. You can get the green card. You know, there's, we, we do this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a year, you know, mm-hmm. for, for people. So, you know, yes. you just have to have a good plan and know what you have to do to get where you want to go. Perfect. And I have one last question for you that, that we prepared beforehand, but I wanted to ask this question from deep very quickly. Cause I was, I'm curious about it too. You mentioned the 90 day period for OPT. So can he apply for OPT after he defends? So after he gets his PhD or does he have to start it before he gets his PhD? 
no, you there, there's a window of time where you're allowed to apply for the EAD. I think it's 90 days before you graduate. And, you know, I don't do this, but schools do. I think it's 30 days after. Okay. So the main thing is you have to coordinate with your school official. If you yes. miss that timing of applying for the OPT, it is a catastrophic disaster. Yes. Because you won't get the OPT, immigration will deny it. So it's always best to apply early and not wait. So, you know, just talk to the school official about what is the window of time to apply for the OPT and no, nobody can miss that window. Perfect. Last question. Uh, so changing jobs before or after getting a green card, what's best? Sure. So if you're self-filing these petitions, the EB1 or the NIW, you're not bound to any one employer. So as long it becomes important to define your field in a certain way in the petition. You have to say you're a researcher in the field of blank, mm -hmm. and you have to fill in the blank that it covers everything that you have accomplished to date, mm -hmm. plus a job that you might take if you change jobs before the green card, because everybody goes to a green card interview now. And at the interview, you need to bring a letter from your employer stating that you're, you know, we're employing Dr. So-and-so in the field of blank. So defining your field is a critical component of a self-filed researcher petition. You cannot make it too big like the field of chemistry, okay? Because you're trying to show that you have made an influence and an impact on your field. It's really hard to show you've influenced the field of chemistry. So, you know, we say understanding the molecular mechanisms of protein-protein interactions, something like that, okay? But now if we define your field that way, you, if you're going to change jobs before the green card, then you have to still be working in the field of understanding the molecular mechanisms of protein-protein interactions. So you have to think about how to define your field that any new job you take, it's going to fall within that umbrella. Hmm. Also, if you change jobs, you might need to change your underlying non-immigrant status. You might need to change an H, change a J. Once you have filed a 45 and have an EAD and an approved petition, then you can work on the EAD. You never want to work on an EAD before you have an approved petition, because then all your eggs are in one basket in right. terms of getting the petition approved, unless you have no choice but to do that. Sometimes the only way you can stay here is to file for a green card and you take your chances. But so changing jobs before the green card, you want to make sure you're still in the field as you defined it. After the green card, it only comes up if and when you apply for citizenship. So after the green card, we say work in your field for a reasonable period of time to which there is no definition. Okay. Three months probably would be okay. Two days is not okay. So, you know, six months is better than three, nine months is better than six. And again, you can go do whatever you want at a certain point in time. If you want to go flip those hamburgers in McDonald's a year after you have your green card because you're the greatest researcher, feel free to do that, okay? But there has to be some reasonable period of time after you get the green card that you continue working in your field. Before the green card, you have to be working in your field. And if you don't have a job offer at the time of the interview, with USCIS, because that happens sometimes. I've had clients go to the interview with proof that they're looking for a job 
you know, emails about job interviews and things like that. And immigration has approved their case. Perfect. Brian, thank you so much. Great knowledge as always. For those of you who are listening, please do me a favor and thank Brian in the chat box. If you're watching any of our live streams, uh, please thank Brian. We will put the link to Brian's webpage, his firm's webpage in the uh, chat box too and in the various comment sections. I'm showing it on the screen here. Easy to remember, researchergreencard.com. Phone number at the top, email, or you can click this button and schedule a free consultation. If you are in the international PhD community or joining it, you will see Brian very frequently and get more consultations like this. Brian, thank you for your time. Great to see you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. So please thank Brian if you haven't yet. Lots of information. Where else can you go from talking about meaning and work to getting your green card to work in the U.S.? Now, back to talking about careers. We're going to bring on a very special guest, Brent, who's going to talk to us about his career path. This is something we do every radio show. We always have a leadership component. We have some sort of specialty expertise. That's what we just talked to Brian about. And now we're going to talk about a specific career path. So we're going to bring Brian on. And as we do that, I'm going to show his bio here. So Brian is from Shawnee uh, Mission, Kansas, earned his uh, BS and MS in biological systems engineering from Kansas State University and his PhD in biomedical engineering from Colorado State University. He's driven by a passion to advanced healthcare with engineering and recently transitioned into a role as a medical device analyst at Medtronic's heart valve division. There he sees how PhDs can apply their talents and skills towards improving the world around them. Uh, as long as they uh, persevere through their job search, it does take some perseverance. Um, when he's not at work, he teaches Sunday school and gets as many laps in at the pool as possible. Let's see if we can get Brian on here. Uh, sorry, Brent. Let's see if we can get Brent, Brent on here. Too many BR names. So, Brent, let me see if I can get you on. I have you. Perfect. There we go. Brent, thanks. Brian, Brent, say that five times fast. So how are you? Did you swim in the pool today? Not yet. That's a plan for after work today. Ah, okay. No. Just after a, a little, little bit of motivation to get through the day. Did you, uh, did you compete in swimming? Or you just? Um, I was a, a water polo player for Kansas State. Oh, man, that is uh, tough. Yeah. What kind of, I heard it's one of the tougher sports because you have to basically tread water for how long? Oh, it's uh, eight-minute quarters. So, and the water is at least seven feet deep, so you're not standing on the bottom of the pool at all. Oh, man, that is tough. Yeah, I heard it's like one of the, the most difficult things to do. That's awesome. Um, so, enough about swimming. I want to talk to you about your career path. Thanks for coming on to share. I really appreciate it. Um, please thank Brian in advance in the chat box because he's coming in in his work day to talk to us about this. Uh, so, when it comes to your career path, can you tell us a little bit about it? What do you do specifically? What does it look like day to day? So I wouldn't say that there is a standard day, but my role is to look at why heart valves fail in the clinic after they've been implanted in a patient. Okay. And that could be anything from getting on the phone and calling a doctor's office to talking with the salesperson who was actually in the procedure to even reading about it in literature articles mm -hmm. and being able to take all the individual pieces and put them together to tell a complete story to the FDA or to some other regulatory body throughout the world. Wow. So, which is, so it requires a lot of coordinating and you're talking to a lot right. of people, key opinion leaders, clients, patients. 
Um, how did you find out about this role? How did you even knew it existed? How did you? Uh, this this was actually something I didn't know beforehand, but I was talking with the recruiter, a recruiter back towards the end of last year, who thought that my background in biomedical engineering would be a good fit for this role here, okay. and was able to make that match and um, land me an interview. And when I got to the interview, they realized that you know, they can't train you in school to do a job like this, but can you be organized? Can you ask the right questions? And can you learn quickly on the job? And that's what, what they were really trying to tease out during the interview. I love that you said that. So two things I want to cover that are, are always interesting. There's a lot of jobs out there that most of you have never heard of. You've never, there's titles, job titles, roles. You've never heard of them. There's so many. And just learning what those different types of jobs are can open up whole new avenues and worlds to you. There's a job out there that could be a perfect fit for you. You never even knew the job title existed. Second thing is, just like Brent said, when you're coming into the interview, especially when you're actually going through the job search process, they're going to like, they're just like he said with the recruiter, you're going to have like a, basically your PhD stamp or your background stamp, biomedical engineering, PhD, that's done. Now they want to know about the transferable skills. What Brent say, learning, right? Learning on the job, speed of learning. Yet most of you don't know to talk about that as a transferable skill. What are some of the other transferable skills? You said time management. Looking back now, like what do you use most, most of the time on the job in terms of the non-technical skills? Uh, definitely time management. With our field, we're required to have our reports to the regulatory bodies by most of the time it's 30 days, but sometimes it could be 10 days if it's a very severe event in certain countries. Okay. Yeah. So, so time management also, I mean, communication skills, you're coordinating a lot too, right? Are you doing more coordinating than you thought? Like maybe you have to get two people on the phone at the same time, et cetera. Not, not so much that, but it's the different types of people that I have to communicate with. Sometimes I'm talking with nurses who are on our team and have been working in the, um, in the clinic for several years. Other times I'm talking with salespeople who don't necessarily have the same engineering or technical background that we do. But either way, we have to address um, the questions that we need answered to get the regulatory reports sent. So, yeah, so there's a lot of things. I mean, reporting, documentation, all of these things that, again, you may not think to put on your resume or to bring up during an interview, but that's really what they're looking for. We've, so, Brent, I don't know if you caught any of the other show, but we've been talking a lot about finding meaning in your work and what engages you the most, the fulfillment aspect. So I'm curious, like, what one or two things that you do in this new role provides you the greatest sense of, of meaning or fulfillment? Well, uh, at Medtronic, we have an expression that says, if you touch the product, you touch the patient mm. and realize that what I do every day goes into making our products better. So uh, somebody doesn't have to go in for a heart valve replacement. Yeah. Great point. And then, uh, you know, thinking back to when you were in academia, what, what were some of the reasons that you decided to transition? Was it, did you lose a sense of meaning? Uh, what, what was the trigger? I think it's just the scope of the impact of my work. Hmm. I felt like in an academic setting, it was a very niche application that might see patient impact after a few years. But what I do here at Medtronic has an impact today. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of you are looking for. Again, you know, I always use the joke about 
because just what I experienced, I was just was loading a gel one day being like, is this all that I'm going to spend the rest of like the next 10, 20 years doing or something similar for some people? It's okay. But if you're here, you're probably thinking there's, I want to have a bigger impact or, or I want to be closer to the impact. You know, I want to add more bricks to the wall using the, the metaphor we talked about earlier. So, okay. You decided to start looking for other jobs. Can you walk us through just a little bit of your job, the job search process for you? Anything that really worked? Any, any really difficult moments on the other side okay. of it? Okay. Yep. Um, actually, I was, um, had a little bit of a tough time with my job search because of a geographic restriction. Mm. Uh, my wife and I moved from Chicago My PhD advisor moved from Colorado State to establish connections in, um, in a new city, whether it be with recruiters and hiring managers or industry employees. Mm. And just being able to present that, you know, I have a PhD in biomedical engineering. I have ex expertise in this, this, and this, but I also have these transferable skills that any company would be interested in. Yeah. And you were really good at that. I mean, I think once you learn to start communicating your transferable skills, you just immediately show you're more well-rounded, you're ready for industry. Mm -hmm. Employers know when you focus just on the technical skills, you're kind of still stuck in your academic mindset. Mm -hmm. Last question, Brent, I really appreciate your time, by the way. Thank you. But my last question to you is if you could go back and talk to yourself at the very beginning of your job search, mm -hmm. or maybe during one of your darkest hours in your job search, right? Because it can be tough sometimes. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give? What would you say? I would say don't be afraid of the telephone. Just being able to pick up the phone, call a hiring manager or recruiter that you've never met before and just go into a normal conversation. Amazing. Perfect. Yeah, I completely agree. Brent, thank you so much for your time. Really good to see you and congratulations on your career success. Very good. Thanks so much, Isaiah. Please tell, tell Brent thank you in the chat box. He comes on with us quite frequently on our, our shows and uh, our webinars. So really grateful for Brent and uh, really excited about his career and the fact that he gets to help people and do meaningful work now. So thank you, Brent. Great to see you. Okay, this takes us to the end of the por public portion of our radio show. Thank you all for tuning in. You can go to phdsgethired.com, sign up with your name and email there and you'll get all of our updates in terms of our radio shows, our free articles, our, our books that we have on negotiation and resumes, informational interviews. Uh, be sure to stay tuned uh, for the recording of this. If you happen to miss any part of it or you want to hear it again on our podcast, you can sign up for our podcast. You can subscribe to it on iTunes. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Bum, bum, bitch. Bum, bum, bitch.